Welcome to Wisco Dice. Welcome to Wisco Dice. Welcome to Wisco Dice. Hey, yo, folks! It's your host, the Conzi with the most. I am joined by the one, the only, the Stark, the Raving, the Mad One himself. Hey, Brian, what's going on? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, we're getting into spring here and vaccinations and such, which is exciting. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We also have the illustrious, the meeple, the cardboard legend himself. Justin, what is going on, bud? Hey, guys. I'm doing good. <laughs> also, getting on that vaccination train soon soon to be fully vaccinated. Woohoo. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I I've managed my full two weeks as of today. So, woot! Yeah, because that means we can actually start playing games again. Yes, the For prospects real, of in-person gaming is becoming more realistic. Certainly, there are things to be considered and safety and all of that aside, but the prospect of being able to do in-person gaming is so exciting. Very excited for that. Today's episode is episode 80 of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast, and today is April 28th, 2021, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, that's when we're recording this. And on today's episode, we will cover some of our favorite miniatures used for uh, games, and we will also have an interview from James, who is uh, a store manager over at Noble Knight Games. We will touch up on what we've been doing in our hobby corner for hobby and miniature painting projects. Uh, but first, let's go ahead and dive into what games we've been playing. So, Justin, it looks like you've been playing some really fun games. What, what have you been playing lately? Yeah, uh, so I finally got a chance to try out Viscounts of the West Kingdom. This is a worker placement well, a worker placement. Hmm. Maybe it is. It's a strategy game from Garpel Games and designer Shim Phillips, and it is one that you uh, reviewed on the blog. But I picked it up recently and got some plays in. This is the third game in the West Kingdom trilogy, which includes Architects of the West Kingdom and Paladins of the West Kingdom, uh, both of which I had played before as well. Uh, so I was just glad to kind of get the trilogy complete. Just a couple of things to say about it. I think you know the main the main mechanic in the game is is a a rondel system essentially with a unique kind of take on it where your your viscount or your main sort of uh, character your hero I guess is traveling around the kingdom uh, which is the rondel the game board is the rondel each turn you kind of are able to decide how far along the rondel you go which determines what actions you can take. And it's got, you know, the kind of classic resource resource gathering from the other West Kingdom games. Um, you're hiring the, you know, help of other villagers in the areas you're in to kind of boost your actions. A deck building mechanic with that too, where you're 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 adding to a, a deck of characters that provide you different sort of uh, action symbols, which determine how strong of an action you perform. So. For example, one of the actions is like a merchant action. And if you uh, are on a space where you can perform the merchant action, you know, you might be able to spend two merchant symbols to get one stone or something like that. 
I had a good time with it. I went back and took a look at your review too, and I also had some of those same game rules and rulebook issues that you kind of mentioned in your review. There are a couple things that just weren't super clear right off the bat. So, you know, I had to do some search on the Board Game Geek rules forums to kind of clarify some things. So that might be one little sticking point. And also, you mentioned these this, the slidey cards and the player boards. That is definitely the case. They're like really slick, glossy material, and they slide all over the place. Cool game. And I think the only other comment I kind of had is a, it has a unique uh, like end game condition, I guess, where basically you have these two stack of two stacks of cards. You have debts or you have deeds. And the game ends once one of those stacks or the end of the game triggers once you deplete one of those stacks. Uh, But there's plenty of things you can do throughout the game that just don't involve removing cards from those stacks, taking debts or deeds. And so for us, for my couple plays, it seemed like maybe it was longer than it needed to be. But I think that if that's the case, it seems like it's also a very customizable system where I could just say, hey, I'm only going to use 10 instead of 12 of these cards in each stack to, to control the length of the game. But all in all, I really like the game. Excited to play it some more. Viscounts was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed playing that game myself. Uh, it was just more component frustrations than yeah. gameplay issues that I found when I played it the first time, uh, first couple of times through. So glad you enjoyed it. All right. So I played a game of On Mars from Eagle Griffin Games and by designer v- uh, Vital Lacerda is one of the bigger name designers in the industry well known for all of his mega crunchy games on mars is the only i think lacerda game i have ever actually played though uh, and i got suckered into it darn you noble knight <laughs> by their display of the kickstarter version of the game uh, by their registers while I was in playing uh, a night uh, Batman miniature game. And so I immediately said, I have to have that game and went home with On Mars. That was, I don't know, year, year and a half ago. We played it once, uh, just uh, Suzanne and I, and like it was super frustrating. And we fought through the game. And after about four, four and a half hours on that first play, we uh, finally finished it, botched a bunch of rules, and put it back in the box and <laughs> let it sit on the shelf for almost a year. And we kept talking about getting it back out and giving it another go. Um, it's such a pretty game. They have, like, all these the, the, the wooden meeples are, like, cool. Like, the rover looks like a cool rover. The bots look like cool bots. The rockets look cool. All of the bits, the theme is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's this, this super cool game uh, from a from a, a components perspective. But the because we kind of bumbled our way through it that first time, it was really painful, and so we finally broke it out and played it again. During on Mars, you're playing—you're basically playing as a group of collective players that are building a colony on Mars. So unlike a very popular title, Terraforming Mars, where you, you're looking at a huge chunk of the of the globe, you're only looking at this itty bitty little spot on Mars where you're 
basically making various habitats that are going to produce things like food and minerals and all sorts of other resources that you would need, as you would think, to live on Mars. There's some scientists that you can recruit to help you, and there's like an orbital space station. You can travel between the orbital space station. You can travel to the colony on Mars. Your action selection changes based on where you are in the game. Uh, and as you collectively build on the habitat, uh, or on the actual colony habitat itself, you'll the habitat itself, the level its level will actually increase, which is one of the potential end game triggers. There's also several missions that are on the uh, game that are also a uh, end game tri- uh, conditions, and then like timing when you're going to be on the space station and when you're going to be on the colony and and what actions you do and when you do them there it's just a massive brain burn uh and so going back and playing it a second time we we ended up having to kind of reteach it relearn it watch some youtube videos on how to play it and there's some good ones out there for how to play it we sat down and played it again Uh, i think we we really enjoyed it we definitely enjoyed it more than we did the first time i'll tell you that uh, entirely I think this is a, a a good game, but there were a couple of things that, for us, it just wasn't a perfect game. And we play, we do enjoy a lot of really crunchy games. I think one of the big ones for us was that it, the iconography and the look of the, the some of the, the way the symbols and and things work. There's a lot of iconography in the game, and that it didn't seem to be representative iconography wise of many other titles that we've played and so it was hard to relate things like water and mineral and and to remember oh yeah that symbol is this and this symbol is that i don't think it was terrible but it was a it was enough different that it made it a bit of a challenge to constantly be going trying to remember what all these icons were i i wish there was actual text on on some of the components that would tell you what these things are to help with that but obviously i I think it's printed with a way that hey we can print a bunch of components and then just give you different rules for different languages and not have to worry about reprinting all of the the english pieces but uh it's a cool game and thematically it's awesome beautiful pretty on the table takes a ton of table real estate if you are into hardcore crunchy Euro games, this is definitely a game for you. Justin, I think you've played this game before. I have played this once. I don't remember a lot of the specifics. I remember the the timing of moving between the the orbiting space station and the planet and that determining your actions being an, an interesting sort of mini puzzle that you had to deal with during the game. And when you can sort of send guys back up to the space station to take actions and when you can bring them down and the timing of how that kind of rotates around is really interesting. Yeah, I I, I remember liking it. I remember it being <laughs> really complex. But uh, yeah, I think, like you said, thematically, it's it's really good. Most of the time, like every kind of mechanic makes sense to improving your habitat or, or roving around the planet to find resources or expanding, you know, your your area. That was a kicker, I think, with the game. Is that well, I thought you know it's definitely a crunchy game. It's definitely a crunchy Euro game. I didn't think it was like oh my god, complex mechanically. I think, or even it's definitely not the most complex game I've ever played. It's just 
in like in like in a, I just reviewed Hell Air Tau, uh, which is Uwe Rosenberg's one of his here. I think it's his most recent game, and I feel like that game was far more complex, but because it's so much of the same like iconography from like even going tra- tracing all the way back to like Agricola yeah. that it was like oh well I know what that symbol means and I know what that symbol means and oh yeah that symbol looks just like the game component for that symbol so hey I've got it all together and I I know what everything means this game doesn't quite do that so it makes you Everything was so awesome thematically, but it it took you that extra brain crunch of putting together symbols on the board with physical components and theme that was going on. So the it helped with it definitely aided with the immersion, but then it made me like lose track mechanically necessarily of what I needed to do. I for my a number of plays to really get the feel. I'll I'll almost assuredly have a second play of it here, a third play of it here before this episode goes out. So, uh, because the game table needs to get freed up for other gaming activities. All right, um, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to pop into our interview with James. And then uh, when we wrap that up, we'll get into our main topic. All right, and we're back, and we are joined uh, by James uh, from Noble Light Games, and Hello. I've got Justin here as part of the part of the interview crew. So, hey, guys. hey, so with that, let's go ahead, Justin. Why don't you take us away and get us started? Yeah, uh, so we are welcoming James Zedham from Noble Knight Games. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Extremely happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So just the introductions. Let us know a little about yourself. What's what's your role at Noble Knight Games? At Noble Knight Games, I'm the lead of the store end of the operation. And to really understand that though, I have to explain the the operation of Noble Knight is actually a giant the best way to think about it is it's a giant warehouse that happens to have a store attached to it. Yeah. So we're we're a multi-person operation. I think we're over 60 employees at this point. We grew very quickly uh, over 2020. And so my end of it is the public facing end of it, which is actually the smallest, probably the smallest team outside of a few specialty departments. But I I run the walk-in end. I run in the end where you come in and do your traditional shopping. Awesome. And and so my my understanding is Nomadite started as more of a, online sales is is the move to a retail location more recent or has there always been sort of that retail front as well actually predated online sales which to me blew my mind when i learned that it started in 97 uh in janesville wisconsin and it was a cataloging business it was that they made their sales via catalog uh the the owner aaron leader would buy people's old game collections and it was just him and a couple of employees, and they would just make their own catalogs, mail them out. Hey, we've got all these classic out-of-print games, you know, by 97, where at the dying days of AD&D. Yeah. This is pre-my time in Wargaming, so one of you guys would know what editions of Warhammer Fantasy and 
Warhammer 40k were in at that point. Uh, that's a bad question. <laughs> I actually don't know off the top of my head. We're probably, yeah, I don't know. That's probably about the time I started 40k, but yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I was 16 and not paying attention to that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so, so it was a cataloging business. Then it became an online business. And by the time it left Janesville, which was 2018, uh, it, it had a very small storefront and most everything was scattered over four different warehouses and the owner's basement. Mm. It just couldn't really operate well that way. So our current location is in Fitchburg, Wisconsin, uh, which is part of the greater Madison area. So calling it, it saying it's in Madison is close enough. Yeah, I think I, it counts. It definitely counts. This thing's Madison, I yeah. think. Sorry if there's any Fitchburg diehards listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a, a close neighbor at the very least. Uh, yes. And if and if anybody has not been to the Noble Knight store, it is a beautiful location. Really, really nice. Big, big gaming space. Really cool. Uh, definitely would recommend if you haven't checked it out to go and do that. So thank you very much. Yeah, uh, you kind of gave us that little background of Noble Knight. So what is your kind of gaming history or what got you into the hobby? Uh, you mentioned wargaming. What's your background? Um, I, I actually was primarily just a diehard RPG guy uh, in junior high and high school. And started with AD&D, which I think almost everybody from my generation did. And I found, eventually found a store called Pegasus Games in Madison, Wisconsin. That's where I got all my role-playing games. And eventually, I started working there uh, back in 2006. And that's how I started professionally. But also, at the time, I was living in a house full of geeks who did a weekly game <laughs> night. And that's when I got into board games and card games, and that's when... I, I really started broadening my horizons and what was supposed to just be a, a part-time job to get me through the rest of college turned out to be something I never left. <laughs> uh, and so when Pegasus Games was originally going to close in 2019, but then got a new owner three or four days after our going away party, yeah. uh, I had gotten hired at Noble Knight. And then a few months later, we had a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Surprise. Yeah, it's the weirdest year of a job I've ever had, that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Given that that there is that weirdness, uh you know, we we kind of want to ask like what's a average day for you working at a big game store like this? Uh, you know, what's your day-to-day -day look like? A, a lot different than I ever expected. So for, for my basis of comparison, when I was working at Pegasus Games, which it was a little bit of everything. I had to be the manager. I had to be the janitor. I had to put in orders. I had to check those orders in. I had to help with the customers. And uh, then, of course, manage our small team. And now... 
I not only, I have a job where we don't have organized play, obviously, which is very unfortunate. It was one of my favorite things. And hopefully, hey, there's a light at the end of that tunnel. Um, but now the job is much more focused. I don't have to do that uh, inventory check-in anymore. I don't have to do the ordering anymore, which is fantastic. I uh, don't have to be the janitor anymore, oh, except once in a while, you know, the small stuff. Yeah. But like I said, we're, we're a 60-person operation now. So what my job is, which I was not expecting, and it's, it's a wonderful new challenge after doing this for 14 years, is I'm uh, one of the center points between my team and this, this giant business giant, giant small business yeah. that includes uh, you know, a warehouse team and a receiving team and a cataloging team uh, dedicated to new items and a cataloging team dedicated to used items and a team dedicated to collectible uh, card games. So the, the leadership of each department is basically responsible to make sure all these disparate teams run smoothly together. Uh, so, so what is the typical day? A, a whole lot of back and forth between yeah. different voices. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've got a small team that doesn't need to be micromanaged much. They know their job as the retail side, and I can just say, okay, get these three done, things done today and be prepared for something unexpected to happen. And I'm going to go make sure nothing unexpected happens. So it sounds like you're... You... You're glad that you aren't doing the the, the janitorial stuff as well. But yeah. uh, what, what's your uh, what's like your favorite part of what you're doing right now? The most satisfying part of your job. So I don't think it's controversial to say we've all had a really really bad 14 months. I don't think yeah. that's controversial to say at all. Nope. Um, I I've made the joke very quickly when we had to start expanding that uh, we're not the frontline fighters. But we're certainly the bards. <laughs> um, so the, the favorite part of my job is that we're, we're, we're selling morale boosts, basically. We're selling games. We're selling fun. We're selling um, things to keep people entertained at home. And I think, we're, I think mainstream people are finally starting to catch on to how important that actually is. You know, yeah. it, 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 how important games and entertainment actually are for folks. So that, that's well, my favorite part. Yeah, that that's awesome. I, I, I and I, if I can add to that, I Please. think there's a there's a, a uniqueness in sort of uh, board games and tabletop gaming and war games is there's like a direct social aspect. Like it, you could consider like a video game maybe a similar, but there's a connection between people that you get with board games and and war games and tabletop gaming i mean obviously the the pandemic has put a strain on all those kinds of activities for everybody and yeah it, it is important uh and i think that that sort of social aspect too is 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 key there <clears throat> yeah uh, absolutely and that's that's I, I think that's why i haven't really walked away from doing this for 14 years and why i've that's only become even stronger as my favorite thing to do. It's like, yes, I sell fun. We need a lot of that right now. Here you go. Take it. <laughs> yeah. 
does working in you know the games industry and dealing with games and the and the and the stock and this the, the whole business of the industry does that make it harder for you to enjoy games and playing games in your personal life or maybe make it better you know <laughs> it, it it does but it, it took me a while to realize i think it was more uh i think it was more the hours than anything else <laughs> if you work retail you you don't generally get like your full weekend and uh yeah. you don't always get the nine to five because you've got to work you've got like 12 hours or 13 hours depending on how long your business is open in a day um so it 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 does make it harder and it's not that i get home and i think oh, i never want to see that again and, and I want to look at games for the rest of the night. It's more that I get home and I go, well, can I, who can I get together with? Uh, well, no, that person's got his family and he's, his kids are going to bed in, in two hours. And, <laughs> you know, that person's got to go to bed early because they work at seven in the morning and things like that. So yeah. it does, but it, it's mostly the odd hours that I think retail brings to anyone. Yep. Yep. But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I imagine there's still some benefits to working in a game store and, and <laughs> being interested in games. <laughs> one or two, one or two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, uh, so what, what kinds of games are you interested in? What, uh, what are your personal interests in games? What's your stuff you, you really get excited about? I mean, that's in so many ways, that's almost like saying, what's your, what's your favorite breath of air you, you just took? Um, <laughs> uh, Stole that line from Jerry Seinfeld. Please don't think I'm I'm clever. I plagiarized it. Uh, like when I first got in, like I said, I was just the role playing games guy. That was my my big thing was give me as many different types of of role playing games as you can because I wanted to experience that variety. Uh, and then that need for variety opened. I like I said, I was living in a house with geeks that had a weekly board game and card game night. So I got into that. And I had worked at Pegasus Games for a couple of years, insisting I, I, I can't paint. Guys, I'm never going to be able to paint. I was the least artistic kid imaginable. And then one day they sat me down and they said, okay, here, you don't even have to buy anything. Just try this. And now I've got a dedicated paint room. <laughs> right. Nice. Uh, and uh, the the only things I have avoided... Uh, I've been uh, collectible games just because I sink so much money into anything else, everything else, since I am into, you know, I do like board games and I do like card games and I do like miniature games and uh, say, okay, I've got, I've got to cut it off somewhere. (laughs) I draw the line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So fair enough. um, Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Saying, Saying one of my favorites is just, yes, a little of everything. We we've done pretty much the same thing to Justin in regards to miniatures. We've already sucked him into buying paints. Now he's he's traditionally a board gamer and RPGer, and uh, so we've sucked him into buying paints. And uh, he's you accomplished painting your first figure just a little bit ago in what ages? Yeah, no, I mean so. uh, it's probably twenty years, something like that, since I even touched us, the paint. But yeah, I mean, there's so many there, guys. There, sorry, go ahead. Us miniature guys know how to corrupt, uh, <laughs> corrupt you and get you to suck you in. First minis for free. Well, there's so many cool 
I mean, there are so many cool aspects to, I mean, like board games, yes, like card games and like there's, there's so many cool things you can, you can check out. And uh, I, I appreciate somebody who's also saying, Hey, you know, you, you know, James is like, they got to draw the line somewhere know where your limits are. <laughs> that's, that's something I got to do too. You know? Yeah. And what, what I did like, and this is how they suckered you into gaming. And I think Ben had a, a little bit of influence in this but not too much is was not was pointing out you don't have to get into war games but all these board games are starting to get these interesting uh, uh fun little miniatures you can just paint those yeah. yeah and that's where the downward spiral started into getting into certain war games so aren't you ben <laughs> yes well, i'll take credit for that i mean once you got the paints what's the big deal just go buy a couple buy that starter box for their for the next game you want to try out that miniatures game you're like oh those models are really cool i've been drooling over them for ages i might as well buy them i got all the paints and the brushes now yeah (laughs) i think as long as i already have x that's that's the most common uh uh start signpost on the slippery slope as as long as i have this i may as well yeah i mean that's the upsell right indeed it is i Back to Kickstarter for a role-playing game called uh, Sentinel Comics. It's based on one of my favorite card games, uh, which is Sentinels of the Multiverse. And yep. uh, so I've been gearing up for that role-playing game. I did run two sessions at Online Cons last year uh, at MythCon, which is out of Montreal, and out of uh, Gamehole Con, which moved online, but it's normally here in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, from the miniature's end, uh, I've been getting into uh, finally painting a giant backlog for a game called Shadows of Brimstone. Um, this name will probably most most sense to Ben. It's a lot like someone took the old Warhammer Quest board game, uh, then slapped Lovecraftian monsters and an Old West theme to it. Uh, that's putting it charitably. Or you can say they took the role-playing game Deadlands, and filed all the serial numbers off and turned it into a board game. <laughs> I've seen some cool uh, sandworm minis from that game. I think they're like a sandworm kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's absolutely some uh, some uh, Tremors influence in there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, th- those are the two that I've been gearing up the most for like, okay, at some point... Uh, I could do the RPG more over uh, Discord, which I'm planning on doing soon. But that tabletop game, no, I'm, when I launch it, I want to have several dozen miniatures painted and ready to go for that board game as soon as I can. Nice. So, yeah, those, those are my top two. Currently. Thanks. Sentinels of the... Sentinels... What was the name of the, the Sentinels RPG? Sentinel the, the, Comics? The, yeah, the Sentinel Comics role-playing game. It's based on the Sentinels of the Multiverse card game, which I said, I think for close to 10 years has been one of my favorite card games ever. Yeah, that's a big one out there. I played that one a few times too. Maybe a similar question here. What is maybe a favorite game or kind of a go-to game that you will tell customers about on a regular basis or, you know, uh, if it's, if it's Shadows of Brimstone or something else, like, What's your favorite game to pull others into to get them to get them some you know excited about something? You know, it's fun. I would never 
ever recommend to someone to start with Shadows of Brimstone is the big <laughs> thing. And uh, with Sentinels of the Multiverse, if someone or Sentinel Comics, with someone interested in role playing games, I I don't think I would actually recommend them to start with that one either. Um, like those are my these are complicated things that require a big investment of time up front. Mm. Um, but for, for roping people in, <laughs> oh man, how much do you want me to say? I think we're, we're at a great place. I think we're at the most beginner friendly version of dungeons and dragons ever. So when people come and start asking about, Oh, I've heard things about Dungeons and Dragons, or I've heard things about role-playing games. I think the the current edition is the most accessible it's ever been. So that is absolutely one of my favorites. And I couldn't always say that about D and D, like to to get people interested in that. And when it comes to board games, we're at a point where now we have this, uh, I think, deluge of choices for getting people in who are not are, are, are oh i've heard this you know the beyond monopoly games what are those <laughs> so one of my current favorites is a game called splendor because i can pitch it by pointing out hey the rule book is is two double-sided pages that's it and it's got these uh, wonderful chips in it to represent the resources that are you know big and they make the level lovely you know Clack sounds as you drop them together, so it's got that tactile satisfaction, but it's easy to teach, and it's visually interesting. Uh, and you can pick it up and you can play it with two people, or you can play it up to four people, and it is one of those games that plays really well with the full spread of players, and that's most of a family there, right? I mean, that's and that's the important part is how quickly can we get mom, dad, and, and two of the kids, or one of the parents and all the kids together around the table? So, yeah, Splendor is one of my favorites to get people into that. Um, when it comes to our war games, I know Ben and I here. Uh, ben, I know you're, you got big into the, the night models with the Batman miniature game. I, I got to say, I think Marvel Crisis Protocol has gotten a little bit of an edge on it in terms of beginner friendliness, though. Definitely agree. And uh, so that's another one of my my favorites to recommend just in terms of getting most of the models assembled is very easy. Uh, understanding the game is, on the onset, very easy. And to be clear, none of those three games I've mentioned are shallow games. I don't, I don't want to think that, oh, yeah, they're easy to learn because there's nothing to them. No, no, no. These are games that I've played with veteran miniature uh, players or board game players or uh, or role players. They just have the most gradual learning curve into the complexities uh, that are strictly optional, that you don't even have to get into. So yeah, I think those are three of my, my current favorites for getting people into the various hobbies right there. Yeah, great, great recommendations. Thank you. Of course. Um, uh, and you know, like like you were saying before, it 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 more and more people in the mainstream are are coming into the hobby. I mean, I think probably especially board games, uh, and 
there are so just so many great options for new players or just playing with your family. I mean, uh, uh, so much, you know, it's kind of a golden age right now. I think people throw that term around a little bit for, for board games and stuff. And the mainstream is actually paying attention. So you get these awesome things like Splendor. Who, yeah, it's it's just so easy to teach. And like, you know, I could I could pick up Marvel Splendor and teach it to my five-year-old probably, and he would be, you know, just pleased to, to bits to do it. <laughs> so we have been talking about... Uh, our favorite miniatures that for board games, your miniatures games, and war games. Um, so, what are uh, your maybe favorite or top three, you know, awesome miniatures? Uh, maybe that you painted or just that you really think are, are you know, uh, cream of the crop miniatures out there. So, so I'm, I'm going to start with my personal favorite which is also like my Everest. I doubt I'll ever actually get to it. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a Kickstarter for a game by Cool Mini or Not called uh, Cthulhu Death May Die. And one of the stretch goals for, uh, one of the stretch goals for Kickstarter only, or optional buys, excuse me, not stretch goals, was a very large, 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 large Cthulhu miniature. Like, if your average miniature is about this big, right, this Cthulhu, I can't even show. Oh, great radio, obviously, if your average miniature is about this big. Um, so for, for it, mini- a normal least, miniature, an inch and a half or something, how big is this right, thing? Yeah, it's, it's two feet tall, at least. Uh, so, like, it's, it's Cthulhu to scale. Yeah. And that's the centerpiece of my office. It's directly across. When I walk into my painting office, my little hobby corner, the first thing I see just kind of sitting there looking at me like someday someday you're going to attempt this and you know it i was going to ask if you happy i do have an airbrush thankfully but even that like i've got a detailed i've got a detailed airbrush and a fine detail airbrush and both of those i think i don't even want to think about priming this with those i i need something like one of those i need a a car airbrush just to get the first layer of primer on this thing Yeah, I've got a, a Badger, I don't remember the model of it is, but it's got a big glass bottle that sits underneath it. Um, I, I picked it up for terrain. It's actually, I you know, back when I was running Merry Mayhem, I did a lot of Wargame terrain, you know, 20 plus tables of Warhammer Fantasy terrain. You know, you, you paint quite a bit, so... Uh, you know, it's definitely a, ta- it's definitely a project that we have confidence that you can actually do. And hopefully once it's accomplished, we'll be able to see great pictures of it online and, and, uh, it might even make guest appearances at Noble Knight or something. Well, and now that I've talked about it on this podcast, now I've kind of changed myself to eventually getting it done. Haven't I? <laughs> uh, well, hold if, you I, to if, it. if I had that for the number of projects that I said I was going to do <laughs> and have like partially started or um, let's not talk about my current American army project for bolt action. That's uh, not even half done, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that I'd, saying it on air makes it a, uh, makes it a reality, but sometimes maybe that's a good motivator. We'll see. We'll see. Now that the weather's getting nice too, because 
this is not something I'm going to be able to even paint halfway indoors. I'm going to have to do so much of it just outside in open air. So I'm, I'm rapidly running out of excuses, is I think what I'm saying here. Um, but, but beyond that, um, you know, I think one of my favorite things about just the fact that we're getting so much better at uh, uh, inexpensive miniatures that can still be made with really good details. Uh, I've been a, a, a Star Wars mark since the... 80s so i think uh one of my favorites are just everything produced by uh the imperial assault line is just really nice you know these are really cool board game miniatures so most of them don't even need to be assembled but they still look really cool while they're painted up and it's just great to like get to see all that on a board game like uh and know that you got kids now they're like they didn't understand they're never gonna understand like the gloopy melty face stormtroopers that we had as kids i think and the the things that looked like it came out of those uh molds from the zoo but on a much smaller scale like yep there's your board game pieces so to me that's that's a, a wonderful tickle in the childhood to see all these really cool star wars miniatures ready to go right out of the box for people to play with. Yeah, I, I uh, have played some <clears throat> Imperial Assault with Ben and seeing a, an ATST come onto the come onto the field with, you know, is is definitely gets you in the nostalgia, the Star Wars nostalgia, you know, big old ATST walks up and you got to just what are we going to do? You know. The the nostalgia and then the fear when you realize Ben just <laughs> put an ATST against you. <laughs> Exactly. Well, the best the best tale of that one was the second time you guys encountered Vader because the first time you walked him pretty good because it was like the Force Vision Vader kind of thing. But the second time, you just butchered butchered y'all. And of course, it was the final game of the the thing, and not to give a whole lot away, but I was very delighted because I had taken many losses in a row, and you guys were beyond overconfident. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair yeah <laughs> i think i think that's how they encountered vader and rebels as well though beyond overconfident until he made his premiere <laughs> in that cartoon oh it was just like it was just like the rebel scene it was great <laughs> and there was a hero and there was a hero and there was a hero <laughs> i'm swinging my arms around like vader it was pretty good i i'm very happy with that moment <laughs> we can see the joyous revenge on your face right now, I think. So. Uh, Imperial Assault is such a great game. Not to get off topic, because we never do that. But as the Overlord, you tend to lose far more than you win. And so when you get a win, it's particularly, I think, as the heroes power up, it feels so rewarding and to be able to, I don't think I'd won a game in probably six or seven games at, at that point, maybe more. And so to get that, like, Hey, we're at the final mission and I got the, you know, like not only did I get the win, but it was just like the heroes just were jaw dropped. It was like, you know, it was a total TPK, total party wave, you know, total party kill in, and it was in like no time and they were just all stunned. You got to do the hallway scene from Rogue One as if all the main characters were in the hallway rather than a bunch of uh, rebel soldiers. Yep. 
Except that, except that, like in Rogue One, you know, every, you know, the heroes are all struggling right up until the end when everything blows up. There was no hero struggling for like the last like probably four or five sessions of games. Our overconfidence was our weakness. <laughs> so. It was good. All right, so I think that uh, got us through everything. Unless James, you had another miniature you wanted to share with us. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as long as you guys are going to let me gush about my like favorite toys <laughs> to paint and whatnot, you know, my my other biggest fandom since I was a kid was Fallout. So just the the Fallout miniature game, getting my own super mutants to paint and my own you know vault dwellers and raiders. That's also been a lot of fun. Uh, and that's the studio Modifius doing that one. Um, so that's. Well, I mean, and I think this is this is actually interesting because you just talked about Ben how how great of a game Imperial Assault is. It's not just somebody slapped a Star Wars uh, coat of paint on a really lousy set of rules. And uh, what I love about the Fallout miniature game is it does feel like you are playing not a not a version of the fallout video game but you are absolutely feel like oh yeah this is how a a fright or a skirmish in fallout would go based on all the games that have come before this so we're really lucky i think we're living in this era where uh, uh people now care about not just getting the quick cash grab of like all right this is a name this is a popular name in media so people will immediately grab the product now it's like, all right, how do we capture the experience of this product in this board game or in this war game or even in this card game? Um, I had an amazing experience where the Die Hard board game is actually a fantastic little asymmetrical one versus many board game. And it could not exist if it wasn't the Die Hard IP at the same time. So, yeah, we're really we're spoiled that way, I think. Going sure. back... Thinking back to generationally to the the games and the when you bought a game when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, by the way, I'm not quite that old. Um, but when you bought a game and it had an IP stamped to it, it was so garbage, ninety eight percent of the time. Like there was just it was. It was so bad. It was like buying Atari ET games that, you know, you, you, like, you this might as well just fill a landfill because they were so poor. And then, you know, there were some gems out there. And I do remember Hero Quest. I had a copy of it and I only played it by myself, but I had a copy. And I remember, uh, you know, there were a few gems out there as far as board games were concerned. But it really is wonderful in this day and age to see all of these games, varying difficulties, complexities from very beginner, family-friendly uh, to very complex. And across all of the different genres of gaming, whether it's card or board or tabletop uh, miniature or RPGs, to be able to bring people in and bring more people into the hobby it's it's such a special time to be a part of and i'm i'm very excited about it absolutely always always cool stuff to yep so anyways 
uh, that's, I want to just, uh, thank James for so much for coming onto the show today, being a part of this episode, being part of our 80th episode of Wisco Dice. Uh, I can't believe we've done 80, 80 of these shows now. And, uh, thank you guys for listening. Make sure if you, uh, you're in the market for used games, new games, whether you're in the Madison, Wisconsin, greater area, or anywhere in the U S uh, head over to noblenight.com uh, and go ahead and look for purchases. There's great deals on things that run sales all the time. Uh, and if you happen to be in the Madison area, either traveling, visiting, or you live here just all the time, swing by the store. It's a beautiful facility. You get caught right away with the, the big castle on the front of the, this massive building uh, and uh, when you walk in, you're just floored by how clean, how large, how, what the selection is on the shelves, the two computers right up at the front where you can, you know, look at their entire inventory. And if you find something there, they can actually go get it. I remember going to the Janesville store and you'd be like, well, we'll get it to you tomorrow because it was in one of the four warehouses or possibly basements. And uh, so it's it's just a great shopping experience. And uh, if you have any any questions, uh, all the staff are knowledgeable and are happy to help. And, and thank you, James, for making sure you have the, the front of the store. There is such a great experience for everyone when we go in. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, Ben, quick to your point there, though, um, I'm going to do the, the standard, hey, I've got to plug a thing. Uh, we do ship worldwide, and if you're in the, the uh, United States, the lower 48 states, we ship free after $149. And if you are getting those big board games like the Imperial Assault, or you're a war gamer, especially looking at, you know, 40K and Age of Sigmar, you reach that 149 pretty darn quick. So it is not difficult to reach the free shipping level at all. So, uh, yeah, please uh, uh, check us out online. Or come visit our storefronts. We're open seven days a week, uh, even now and soon. Hopefully by the end of the summer, fall. This is not a promise, but hopefully soon. Return to in-person gaming. We'll see. And with that, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, the rest of the show. We're back and. We wanted to dive into our hobby corner here. So let's start with what miniature hobby projects we've been working on. And, and Brian, why don't you go ahead and let us know what you've been doing. I had a little bit of progress this month. I can't believe it's been a whole month with a little bit of progress I've made. I'm still working on my VC21 project, as I called it, painting up some zombies. Um, I did wrap up the ones I was working on the last episode like right away after that and then i have the next five going but i was trying to think of why i didn't get much progress done and i think just with the nice weather i've been kind of doing some house projects and stuff outside the last couple weekends so still slow going i hope i don't have to change it to the vc21 meaning 21 years project but hopefully it'll pick up and i'm still doing good painting those zombies <laughs> How about you, Ben? What have you got going? I would say it feels like you've been working on that project for 21 years already. So um, what's an, what's another 21? 
<laughs> if you think about when I actually started Warhammer, yeah, um, I'm almost there probably. Don't want to do the math. Dang, it probably is pretty close to 21 years actually. <laughs> That's terrible. So it's true. It's it's true both ways with the name. <laughs> so, anyways, yes, I I actually. So I was super excited for the new Warhammer Quest. Like, um, so Warhammer Quest Curse City. Uh, I'm a huge old f- uh, fan of the old old Warhammer Quest. And when Silver Tower came out, and they it was the first re-release of Warhammer Quest, I was really excited. But kind of watched it get played at a couple of Warhammer tournaments back then, uh, and events, and was just like, yeah. I don't really care for some of the for the way it's been really Age of Sigmar uh, Sigmarized, and it just doesn't feel quite like the old Warhammer Quest. So I'll pass on buying it. So I never got it. And then I think they released another variant off of Warhammer Quest that was uh, for uh, you know basically the same vein. I just don't remember what it was called. And then recently they announced this Cursed City. Now there's a a bunch of drama out there about Curse City and and uh, it's selling out basically everywhere, including Games Workshop's website, super fast. And there just not being enough copies made for how many that people wanted. And I don't, I don't know how much that was of whatever. The price point was pretty ridiculously high, at like two hundred dollars or something crazy. I didn't ask them when they ran my credit card for it. <laughs> They just, they're like, hey, you lost like $250 with whatever other gaming purchases I, w- I was buying. And I was like, oh, that's spent more money than I thought I was. What, whatever. I don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, now, now, now we know how my, my spending philosophy is when it comes to games. They just tell me a number and I take them, take their word for it. <laughs> but uh, I did get a copy. Misty Mountain Games uh, here in Madison made it super easy to get. I just walked in. They... Guy hadn't even unpacked him from the case. He's like, yeah, we have him for sale. Here you go. And I don't know, there was three, four copies of it there. So I got it, took it home. I immediately built the entire kit. Took me about a week to to build everything. I don't assemble particularly fast. Never been something I've super enjoyed. Uh, And then, uh, so now that it's assembled, I actually started painting it. I have five of the zombies uh, from the set painted. I'm Probably half, two thirds of the way through the through five of the skeletons. This, this episode will be out. I'll have those done and probably into the next set of models that are from that kit. So uh, progress is definitely being made, and uh, the sculpts are all really cool. They're maybe a little two dimensional in the sculpts. Uh, the they just feel. They feel very much like, hey, somebody drew the artwork and then they threw that into a 3D rendering modeling application. And while, yes, the models are 3D, they feel very two-dimensional. But uh, otherwise, uh, they they are super cool. And I I am enjoying painting and working on plastics that are uh, this detailed and, and, and this cool. And I'm looking forward to, at some point, playing Warhammer Quest with fully painted models. Sounds very cool. 
So, I, Justin, did did I hear that you had some hobby stuff you'd been working on? Two episodes. Two episodes is all it took, you guys, to lure me <laughs> into the hobby corner. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, uh, after we kind of talked last time, you know, I was thinking about, you know, some of the the minis and the board games I have and other, you know, I have a couple sort of D&D kind of miniatures lying around and <clears throat> I was like, you know what, let's do this. Uh, I went and got a a uh, kind of beginner painting kit. Uh, so I got a Reaper's Bones Learn to Paint kit, uh, the layer up version, uh, which has three uh, minis in it, like a, a wizard and a halfling and a like a guy, kind of desert guy carrying a chest. Um, and it, you know, comes with, you know, a small set of Reaper colors and some brushes. Um, and I did, uh, I'm starting to research in this, into, you know, techniques for beginner painters and the things you need to know and the tools you need. Um, so I have taken the first step. And uh, I've, I've, <laughs> I, I, I've, ta- I've, I've gotten a little progress on, on, uh, on one of the miniatures I started with this uh, sort of a cloaked elfin wizard that I started working on. Basically, just completely following the. They have an instruction booklet in there that's really nice. That's just like step by step. All right, put this base coat of color down. You know, start with the large areas and then move to a smaller brush, that kind of thing. You know, do these do these sections first and paint all this all the space color. Then go and do the shadows, you know, starting with this slightly darker color, then make this even darker color, like, you know, add the shadows and those kind of layers because it's the layer up kit. And then you, you know, it has you switch back and, and go to the highlights and say, all right, now mix this highlight color starting with you know some of the base color and a lighter color and you mix that up and literally just step by step is like here's the colors to use here's where to put them uh so that like as a as a beginner basically you know i mean i haven't painted in probably 21 years right (laughs) (laughs) so it's it was really it's really nice to kind of have that like literal step by step make this color use two drops of uh you know, dragon blood red or whatever the color was, I forget. Uh and and one drop of, of this color. So that was really nice. Oh wow, it gets that, that specific about it. Yeah, it tells you and then it'll be like add one drop of this, one drop of this, and one drop of water, because you want it to um flow into the cracks a little. It's a shadow or a you know, they kind of talk about uh an ink, I guess you would call it. I forget the term. Uh, wash. Where you, or wash, a wash. Maybe. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, where you kind of make your own wash and let that seep into the cracks a little bit, but not cover the area of the thing. So, um, yeah, I started I started working with that, and hopefully, I'll have something cool to show in a little bit. I'm I'm literally just starting with these three figures that came in the box, uh, and more or less exactly following these beginner painting instructions, and we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, it's it's really interesting really to cool. see. Like, yeah, it is, sounds really cool. It's really interesting to see and hear the the difference in in how painting and layering painting is being 
is kind of being taught in this because the the very traditional way to do layering is start with your darkest tone then go to your mid-tone and then go to your highlight tone and then maybe wash it at the end and move on to your next color and that's how you traditionally like back in the late 90s early 2000s that was kind of the way you did things uh you know that was the general like games workshop way to do it and you know to an extent i think still is interesting yeah so yeah yeah, i mean i I just followed the instructions and yeah you know you'll have to teach me if if they're wrong and i'll try a different way but just (laughs) interested to kind of learn and you know like i said i've been watching videos too and seeing like like there's a lot of videos that are like things I wish I knew when I started painting and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I've been checking some of that out and also researching like what kind of tools people use, like wet palettes seem to be a big deal. Um, and I uh, actually got one of those as well, just cause it's like, I like, I kind of believe in the right tools for the job or whatever. So <laughs> just got one of those right away. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm gonna see I how, strongly wet palette. That's that's a a amazing tool. It's probably one of the bigger game changing tools, particularly if you're starting to blend paints and colors, and you're painting any any level of or number of models in quantity. It's super useful. It's also a bit useful for creating those blends because maybe you lose a little less water. The Reaper paints are. Yeah. are pretty good consistency straight out of the pot but you know the other uh, always water your paints um is a big thing too you should you know that straight thickness of paints out of the pot is oftentimes too thick yeah well and what sold me on it really was the idea that um i could preserve even a fairly small amount of paint for a longer time <laughs> Because I'm not going to be doing like as much painting necessarily since I'm starting off, so I don't have to worry about my paint drying out as fast. I could set something aside, you know, and I think maybe I I left a little bit of paint on overnight, and it was almost totally fine the next day with this uh, wet palette. So that for me it was just like, hey, I can preserve my paint a little longer since I don't know how much to use necessarily, or I don't have a ton of paint you know, as a stock. So that's a nice thing for me. That's part of what sold me on it. Yep. No, it's, uh, I mean, I've been working on these five skeletons. I'm working on the red layering and highlighting have been doing that. Yeah. Probably since like 10 o'clock today on and off through the day. And I've never went back and put new paint on my palette. And I've actually had my palette actually open most of the day too. So it's not like it's been covered or anything. So mm stays just fine every once in a while you'll get uh you know a little weird mold or something in the wet palette you know just take a little dish soap or something and uh on the sponge with the water just a a very very tiny you know tiny drop get it get it kind of sudsy rinse it out good and then refill you know put a new paper on it you know fill it up with water you're good to go oh yeah even eventually if the pat the sponge will need to be replaced but it's not one of those things that like oh hey every month or two i need to replace it it's like i replace mine like maybe once a year oh, okay cool so yeah you know painting uh that's cool that's cool you're getting into it and uh we're excited to see 
those first works. And just remember your first works versus your 400th work, there will be significant difference in style, <laughs> technique, and your, your satisfaction with your finished product. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's dive into our main topic then. For today, we were are going to talk more about miniatures. And we're actually going to talk about what our favorite miniatures are that are produced. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in first here uh, and, and lay out. I got two miniatures that I wanted to f- feature here. I just had to mention this one. It's not my like all-time favorite. I mean, I haven't even gotten it out of the box and started building it yet. So <laughs> there's that. But it's a, it's a historical model. And it's actually uh, more like a model kit. Uh, you know, like the, like, you know, you get those RC cars or whatever. It's really one for really that. But it's got it because... Uh, it, it also works for the game Cruel Seas. It's actually uh, the model that they advertise on the Warlord Games website for this. You know, if you wanted to represent this particular ship in the, the game World uh, Cruel Seas, Cruel Seas is a World War II naval combat for really tiny, you know, small uh, coastal boats, really. You know, and basically glorified jet boats and that kind of thing, except there weren't jet boats back then. Uh, but high-powered, maybe four or five crew members with a machine gun and a couple of torpedoes or something like that that were, you know, basically there for coastal defense and, you know, maybe had enough armament to take on a small sub or or uh, other coastal, coastal uh, craft if there was, like, landings or whatever. And so this is the, um, the model itself, uh, to kind of lay all that background, the model itself is World War II Liberty ship the SS Jeremiah O'Brien from Trumpeter Models. It's a 1 350th scale model of the ship. Compared to the other Cruel Seas models, this thing is enormous. It's like a foot and a half long from front, from the bow to the stern, I think is what the naval terms are anyways, from the front to the back of the <laughs> yeah. of, of the model. So in comparison, like the, the other ships in this game, or the other boats in this game are like, two to three inches long normally so this is like massive <laughs> ship um and that gives you like the and the the jeremiah o'brien compared to like say a destroyer is probably about destroyer size but like when you get into the battleship and aircraft carrier for world war ii it's actually a relatively smaller ship so uh you can just kind of get the scale of what cruel seas is in comparison but the reason I got to mention this, the reason that this model is so cool is I actually got the opportunity when I was in San Francisco to go aboard the uh, SS Jeremiah O'Brien. Uh, actually, you got the tour it. It was uh, the engines for this particular ship were the sh- uh, are the engines that you hear for the steam engines in Titanic. Very, re- I'm not sure if they've reopened it yet. Very recently, there was a, a big fire on Pier 37 in in san francisco the very fortunately the the there because when you go out to the dock where the ship is docked there's a and there's like a there's also a world war ii submarine that you can tour but there's a giant warehouse on the one side of it and that warehouse went on fire and the flames from that warehouse flew up over the top you could actually see in the pictures they flew up the flames flew up over the top of the jeremiah o'brien they uh fire the san francisco firefighters and other uh, other uh, people that responded 
uh, were able to control that fire and save, you know, save it from damaging the ship uh, in any level of extensive damage. But, um, you know, that thing serviced D-Day. It serviced uh, a ton of stuff. It's one of a very few Liberty ships that are still afloat in the world today. Uh, and it's still a fully functional ship. So I, I just had to call it out. It's awesome. I'm super excited to at some point get that ship painted up and I may never even, I will maybe never use it as an actual gaming piece, but it's a super cool model and it had to get mentioned. But my all time favorite model is the Carmine Dragon from Forge World. Uh, my version came with the Elspeth, the writer that she has like a uh, scythe and, and uh, rides the dragon. I actually didn't build my Carmine dragon with her on it, but uh, that dragon is so cool, and it was the very first Forge World, World model I ever bought. I painted it up. It sits on the shelf in the game room. It's just one of those models that's just amazing, and I had to mention it as a, a mention here. So it's, it's Forge World... Hey, yeah, no, I, I just, just a question. I, you know, my, the uneducated person here in the miniature side of things <laughs> uh, is Forge World a, a like a manufacturer or a game? I was just wasn't sure. Uh, so Forge World is a subsidiary of Games Workshop. Okay. Uh, they used to do back in the day, back in the Warhammer days when Brian and I were playing Warhammer Fantasy on a regular basis, and Warhammer Fantasy was a thing. Uh, Forge World did all of like the these like small print run resin uh, models. They didn't do a lot for fantasy back in the day until this this run when they did the this Carmine Dragon, and so they started getting into more monsters, and eventually came out with Chaos Dwarfs uh, for the Warhammer Fantasy line. Um, but they did like all these tons of like alternate shoulder pads, alternate vehicle upgrades for different factions for 40k. All of that came out of the Forge World, and it was all you. Only way you could get Forge World stuff for the most part was to order it direct right from uh, Forge World's website and have them ship it over to you via um, exorbitant shipping prices. Um, <laughs> So it was, you know, to, to anyone that had any level of Forge World in any of their collection, whether it was 40K or, or Fantasy back in the day, that was like, oh my God, that's like so amazing. You actually have that Forge World model. And the quality was super on par, really high quality figures. Um, detail has always been really good in Forge World stuff. And, and no doubt this particular model is super cool. One of the coolest dragons that are that I've seen out there as far as a in miniature. And after all, it's fantasy and who doesn't love dragons? <laughs> so, okay. Now, Justin, why don't you dive into <laughs> what your favorite model is or models are? Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I took a little bit of a different angle on things here. Uh, and I focused on, you know, given that and I'm not, don't play a ton of tabletop miniatures games. Uh, uh, focused on board games that I thought had really cool uh, miniatures and, and kind of picked my favorites of, of that. So uh, my first one is the Exosuit miniatures from the board game Anachrony, 
which is uh, from Mind Clash Games. Uh, so Anachrony is a is a a futuristic worker placement game where each of the players takes the role of one of these factions or paths that is trying to sort of uh, gain dominance in a post-apocalyptic, just destroyed world. And one of the aspects of the game, you have to uh, send your workers out into the kind of wasteland destroyed areas, uh, which are very hazardous to take actions. Uh, so you have to use exosuits. Um, in the in the uh, retail game, I thought the miniatures expansions, um, your workers are sort of small hexagonalish chips, or, or sorry, not chips, but uh, cardboard tokens. Uh, and the exosuits are just a sort of standard hex tile. And so to, to send a worker out into the wasteland, you put them in the exosuit by just setting the, the, the human worker on top of this hexagonal exosuit tile and go, go put them out on a space on the board. Uh, but they released this uh, exosuit miniatures uh, for this as well. And so you get these nice big uh, plastic minis. What I really like is that the miniatures, well, essentially totally aesthetic, have a mechanical function in the game, and they have a slot built into the top of them where you actually slide the worker token into them to like put them in the exosuit. And then you take the whole thing and you go stick it on the board where you're going to go do an action or whatever. So I appreciate that like sort of mechanically and thematically, the miniature has some function in the board game. So I think that's really cool. I think my favorite one of the different miniatures is one of the paths is called the Path of Domination, and they're kind of a seafaring faction. And so they have these robotic squid exosuits with these six thick robotic tentacles. Reminds me of something from like the Matrix. You know, and each of the minis is like this little squid bot thing. So that's my number one, uh, my first my first pick, I think. The Path of Domination miniatures from Anachrony. My other pick is also from a board game. This one's from Blood Rage, uh, which is a Viking battle game, for lack of a better word, I guess. Uh, and in the game, you um, are sort of a, a clan of Vikings, and you're trying to take over areas of uh, the land and eventually sort of gain glory and death and ascend to Valhalla, that kind of thing. One of the aspects is you can basically get access to these these huge monsters to fight on your uh, on the on the behalf of your clan, and so the coolest one uh, for me is the fire giant mini from that. It's just this huge muscular giant, kind of gray skin, and has this I don't know I guess almost like Aztec golden armor that he's wearing, uh, and then he has, just has this massive flaming like broadsword thing which like physically got the flames modeled at the end of the sword so it's sort of partly solid partly actual sculpted flame and it's like as big as the entire height of the miniature itself and uh you know again in the game you know getting access to one of these monsters is just a huge like combat advantage and so it's just 
really satisfying to slap one of these huge figures down on your board like all right now i'm fighting with this guy uh <laughs> you know <laughs> so it, it has some some in-game use for in, in that sense too of like this is my this is my big boy right here plus they're just really beautiful detailed models all the all the models in that blood rage game i think are really nice even the even the smaller like viking models i i think are really well modeled blood rage from simon games those ones actually come painted and everything, or are they bare? No, they yeah, they don't yeah. come painted. Uh, I see. But there are some real nice painted versions you can, you know, check out on uh, Board Game Geek or you know different miniature sites and stuff. Yeah, for sure. There ain't no pre-painted miniatures in this list. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. All right, Brian. What do you got? What do you What are you gonna knock us out? Knock this thing out of the park. What are the most amazing models out there for you? Oh, I don't know about that. Um, I kind of went a little bit of a different way in there. Like I was too intimidated to pick something like what the best model ever would be. Like there's so many good models out there and stuff like that. So really focusing on more like what my personal favorite was to me. Um, I definitely focused on my own collection of what I have. I ended up picking out um, Mounted Vampire Lord. That's kind of the actual name for it. It's um, kind of been named as the Red Duke. It's an old 5th edition Warhammer model. Um, I wasn't familiar with it till I was looking more into it for the episode, but I guess it was um, designed around a campaign that was out in 5th edition uh, called Circle. Really old. I love it. Like I'd say it's one of the more character for fully drawn C project. I've had it that long and it's never seen paint, sadly, but and I was thinking about it also. I probably haven't actually played it very much. Like I know I used it way back in the day when we kind of played nonsense Warhammer when I was first getting into it, like not following the rules, but most of my Warhammer games I never used a mounted lord. So I'm don't think it has a lot of games that even though i've had it for that long and i claim it to be my favorite bottle but i think a lot of that um like it's been in some of the backstories in both the bretonian book and the vampire and undead books and i think that's kind of like adds a little extra background and character to the model so that would be i think the favorite one of my favorite ones in the collection i kind of had a hard time picking it out so as like my second choice i was kind of doing a lot of honorable mentions instead just other ones that um for some reason really stand out to me and i guess my other warhammer armies are tomb kings and bretonians so um i think the tomb kings are a really good range like i think they're really popular for their look to some extent because they never really played super well um but if you're unfamiliar with the Tomb Kings, they're kind of the Egyptian-based undead of the Warhammer world. And I feel like they have a lot of good models in their collection. Like a lot of the Tomb Kings themselves, they're just kind of like the old armored mummies. Uh, I like them a lot. Cetra, he's like the ultimate special character of the Tomb Kings. And he has a huge chariot pulled by four skeleton steeds. That's got to be one of like the coolest models. That one's probably pretty close. Um, I think my Vampire Lord won out just because I've had it for longer and probably kind of a nostalgia win there. Um, but there's like the Tomb Queen Kalita and even like the Casket of Souls and the 
Ushabti are like the giant kind of statues made out like to model the gods or whatever with the different animal heads. And they have like these really cool, huge like weapons and everything. So the Tomb Kings range, I think, has a lot of good models in it. And then speaking of another one, uh, the Bretonians, uh, the Green Knight is also a big classic model too. I think I didn't own that one for very long. So I think that's kind of the same thing again. Had I owned that one first, it would probably be very close to the Vampire Lord again. Um, and Green Knight also has a ton of background story too. So I think that draws to my appeal for it as well. And it's a really cool model as far as the classic ranges go. It'd be really cool to see an updated version of it. But the classic model is a pretty interesting model. And then getting into some of the newer stuff I had, um, fo again, focusing on kind of my collection, like out of all the Batman models, like I think it's kind of strange. Like I had the opposite feeling with the Batman models since they're based on something so familiar, like the minis individually didn't stand out that much. I don't have like a huge Batman collection. So maybe that's why, because Plenty of them are pretty dynamic and pretty cool, but I just don't happen to own them. But I remember when I put the Batman from the Dark Knight um, Rises set on the Bat Pod, and when I finished that model, like with this huge cape and everything, for some reason I just thought it looked super cool and stuff like that. Like his cape is like super huge, and like the Bat Pod was kind of a fiddly model to put together. But for some reason, like out of all the ones I put together and own, like that one kind of stood out to me. And in that same vein, going at my historical collection with Bolt Action, uh, the Warlord Resin Hellcat was kind of a similar thing to that. Um, the Resin one, like it has all the kind of features and kit and crew molded into it already. And I don't know if I just kind of got lucky on the draw with that, but it was probably the crispest resin model I've ever had from Warlord. And for some reason, like the Hellcat's a pretty cool looking little tank. And I remember when I finished painting that one, I just thought it was really cool. And then I'm going all over the place with my honorable mentions, but from bolt action, <laughs> uh, conflict 47 is kind of like their alternate history um, based on the bolt action game. And that has some kind of cool, like old futuristic, like so like high kind of fantasy tech for the World War II era. And like I have the German ones because I think they're the most interesting, but I think all the stuff in that line is pretty cool. Like I really like the Germans one the best and that's kind of why I picked up that game even though I don't get a lot of chances to play it, but like the heavy armored Germans in there and some of their like um, mech walkers and stuff were really cool. And then some of my absolute favorite models are some of them that I've converted myself, but I thought that would be kind of a silly choice for picking as my favorite model. And I think they have a lot of sentimental value to me just because I converted them myself. Um, they've all been featured in the past on Wisco Dice as I was doing them, um, but I made like the Black Coach, uh, kind of like my ethereal flying version of that, which that I couldn't like copyright that or something because like uh, Games Workshop updated their model and it's kind of in the same vein as that. So that was pretty cool <laughs> that I was able to pull that off earlier. That was one of my favorite ones. And then similarly, I like kind of went crazy and made 
that Manfred on the kind of undead manticore. That was like a really fun build. And I guess maybe it's even not the coolest ever, but just the amount of like care and detail I put into that makes it one of my favorite ones. And then also I made a few other, like three other little vampire conversions are some of my favorite models as well. One of them being my Hellsteed mounted vampire. So that's like the kind of undead Pegasus, basically. Um, I actually kind of built that one with the Red Duke in mind. So that's kind of like my updated version of that model. And just for that reason, I've tried to put it on the table more because I kind of made that little bit of effort converting it and it calls back to the Red Duke model in kind of an updated way. So after way too many honorable mentions, that's kind of where <laughs> my thought was going with my favorite figures. No, it makes me think that we need to throw like a hall of fame or gallery on the website somewhere where it's, you can kind of, you know, pick your favorite ones to kind of keep up in one gallery page of show off, you know, your cool, your cool models. And future blog post, Brian, there you go. Get that typewriter going. <laughs> That's true. I do need to get some of that out going. You know what I we've talked about our favorite models here, and you know what I would love to see what your guys's favorite models, whether they're from a board game, whether they're from a miniatures game, whether they're from some model kit, what are your favorite models? Show us, uh, reach out to us on your social media or shoot us an email. Show us what your favorite models are. We'd love to see them. And uh, if they're in your collections, so much the better. I think that's part of the hobby and whether it's board gaming or miniatures, it's something I think we all appreciate is that side of the, the gaming side of it with being able to visualize and get that immersion into gaming and nothing does it seemingly better than a really cool figure. For sure. Yeah. So thanks guys so much for sharing. I was pretty awesome going to go and listen to you tell, uh, tell your stories about, you know, these, why you picked these figures and, and why they were cool and why they meant so much to you. And, and everybody's obviously going to choose different things. We have different tastes. There's nothing wrong with it, but that was pretty cool. Anyways, on today's episode, we've basically caught up on our hobby stuff. We've caught up on some of the games we're playing and uh, with Viscounts, the West Kingdom, and On Mars. Uh, we also gave you a good sampling into what our favorite models. And don't forget, we had that great interview with James. Thanks so much to Noble Knight Games and James for taking part in this. We really appreciate it and look forward to doing more with you guys in the future. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts. Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.